Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to thank you for opening your Bible and joining with us to learn how we can serve and honor and glorify God. In the Bible, God presents the relationship between his people and him as a marriage. He did that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The church is considered the bride of Christ. Therefore, it doesn't surprise us when Christ's bride doesn't follow Christ's way. When God's people don't follow his way, that's pictured as adultery. We want to take a look at what is spiritual adultery. How does it happen? And how do we overcome it? That's the point of this lesson. It's the second in our series of spiritual adultery. So please open your Bible and let's learn about how we can overcome spiritual adultery. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at about verse 22, 23. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Within this passage, Paul talks about the husband and wife relationship, and he relates it to the relationship that Christ has with his church. It is no wonder, then, that when God talks about his people, the bride of Christ, when he talks about his Old Testament people, who might consider to be the bride of God, And he talks about them being unfaithful and turning away from his will and following after another. It's no surprise then that he refers to it as adultery. Spiritual adultery. In fact, even in more strong terms, he calls it harlotry. We learned last week as we considered this concept of spiritual harlotry that harlotry, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 4, referred to the disloyalty when they weren't loyal to God. It pointed out when they had followed after other lovers and forgotten the Lord, they were committing spiritual harlotry. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, it talked about forsaking the Lord. When God's people become disloyal, when they turn from Him and forget Him and follow after others, and follow after some plan other than God's plan, then God's people become guilty of adultery, of harlotry. We considered the example of Proverbs chapter 7. And the harlot that tempted the young naive man who walked in her way and turned him from the path of righteousness. And we asked the question last week, what are the harlots that would lead God's people astray from Him? And we recognize several of those, and I'm sure this is not an exhaustive list, but some of the most important, materialism, pleasure, popularity, and then self. 
all of these things that compete with our God for our attention and for our loyalty, that call us away from God's pattern and God's plan for our lives as individuals and for the congregation's life and how it's supposed to work, all of these things that would seek to turn us away from the pattern and the plan that God has for us, seeking for us to follow after another as it, as it tempts us. And all of these things and all the fun and the pleasure that they offer in the end, all that they provide for us is death just as the proverbialist pointed out about that adulterer in Proverbs chapter 7. But today we pointed out that as we continued looking at this concept, we would ask the question, how does this happen? How does spiritual adultery take place? We're going to take a look at that, and then we're going to ask, how do we overcome? If we've, if we've committed spiritual adultery, what do we need to do to get back in the right path with God? Before we look at that, though, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are amazed that You continue to love us. We have sinned and turned from Your path so often. We have done so many things in violation to Your will, even after becoming Your children. And yet You continue to love us. You continue to offer Your forgiveness through the blood of Your Son. You've given us Your Word that we can study and understand it. And we pray, Father, that You would strengthen us to know Your Word, to embed it in our hearts, that we might always live according to it, that we might always serve You and glorify You above all things. Father, we praise Your name and we're thankful that You've loved us and we're thankful for Your grace. And we pray that You strengthen us to live according to Your grace. Father, we pray that we'll be Your faithful servants. We pray that what we're doing here this morning honors and glorifies You. We pray that You would strengthen us in our worship, that as we continue in worship, that we will become better and stronger and more effective as we praise and honor You. Father, we pray that You help us as we seek to edify one another as well, building one another up that we might go throughout this week being Your faithful servants, being examples and lights in this world. Father, we pray that we wouldn't put our light under a basket, but on the lampstand so that it might give light to the entire house. Father, we love You, and we're thankful that You have loved us. And we pray that You forgive us, as You have promised, for the times that we've sinned. And through Your Son who died so that we can have forgiveness, we offer this prayer. Amen. How does spiritual harlotry happen. When you take a look at marriage, literal marriage, between men and women, husband and wives, and you hear about adultery, rarely does it ever happen that a Christian ever wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think today I'm just going to go off and commit adultery. Normally it happens over a process, either because of bad habits developed or because of uh, emotional attachments developed with people that they shouldn't be developed with, and then over time, and suddenly the person finds himself committing adultery, and they wonder, how on earth did that happen? And I think spiritually it's the same thing. I don't think that Christians ever wake up one morning and say, you know what, today I think I just want to completely abandon the pattern of God and just do whatever I want to do and commit spiritual harlotry. I just don't think it happens like that. Rather, over a period of time and through a process of stages, suddenly we might find ourselves fallen from God, doing something completely different. And we'll remember as with the Israelites in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 2, they cried out that, oh God, we know you. And yet in chapter 5 and verse 4, God said, they don't know me. How easy it might be that we have hidden in our own lives what's going on as we're turning away from God. And that's what makes this so important for us to take a look at, at how does this happen. I'll tell you, I think the very first step is seen in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, and here at the Franklin Church, we recognized this a while back as we've been studying the seven churches here. But we notice in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, as 
Jesus said all kinds of good things about the church at Ephesus. He had one bad thing to say. And in verse 4 he said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And I recognize, of course, that the interpretations that people have with that are myriad, but it reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2, as God talked to His Old Testament people, He said, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. Jeremiah 2 and verse 2, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after Me in the wilderness through a land not sown. As God talked about His Old Testament bride, His Old Testament people, He talked about the devotion of their betrothals, that first love that they had when they became married, and how much it is like that infatuation, that devotion we have during the dating process and as we're betrothed and and as we get married and how we just can't imagine anything coming between us. And and it talks about Israel being willing to follow God through the wilderness, even through the barren land you would follow me because you were that much in love with me. And yet that had fallen by the wayside. As we take a look at Ephesus, despite all of the things that they had gotten right, they had fallen from that first love, what I believe to be that betrothal type, devotion love, and it had been replaced with a traditionally minded just going through the motions. And how many marriages have we seen that are doing that? We know what we're supposed to do. We're just going to keep going through the motions because we know we're not supposed to get a divorce. And churches and Christians can get in that same mindset of just, we're just doing what we've always done because that's the way we're supposed to do it. But it's not about devotion to the Lord anymore. And some might say, well, it really doesn't matter because Ephesus at least was still doing everything right. So does it really matter what their motivation was for doing what was right? And yet we remember in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5 that as Jesus encouraged them to repent, He said, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. And so while the church at Ephesus continued to do a great number of things well, clearly their lack of devotion had caused them to stop doing some things. Perhaps evangelism. Perhaps studying. Who knows what it was. But there were some things that they had been doing when they had that betrothal type devotion that they were no longer doing. And while we might look at a church like Ephesus and believe that this is the the pentacle of doctrinal purity, what we recognize, because they were no longer motivated by their absolute devotion and love for God and for His will, they were really just one step away from apostasy. Because the moment that something else came along and enamored them more, they'd be willing to change. Because they weren't doing things because they loved God anymore. They had left that first love. And Jesus said, repent and return and do what you did at first. How many Christians started off with that intense devotion? I'm just going to do whatever God says. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to do it. How many churches start off with that? It doesn't matter what it is. We're going to follow the pattern of the Lord. And then as time goes on, they get entrenched. And now it's just going through the motions. And then, of course, what happens is we get tired of being in the rut, and so instead of going back to God's plan and doing the things we did at first, we look for something new to do. What happens? It all begins with having left that first love. But now we back up into the book of Hosea, the book that deals the most with this concept of spiritual adultery, and we find that Hosea points out there's another problem. 
When we have left our devotion for the Lord in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, God rebuked the children of Israel saying, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Isaiah made a similar comment in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 13. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 13, God there said, My people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Because we are no longer absolutely devoted to the Lord, because we have abandoned that first love, there comes a point at which now we're not as concerned about knowing the will of the Lord and knowing what our groom wants for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17 demonstrates, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 demonstrates how important knowledge is. It says in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Our duty is to understand, to know the will of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. We have to have faith and virtue and knowledge. And then in verse 8 it says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our knowledge has to be increasing. We have to be growing in it. And Peter didn't say, unless you've just been a Christian for 50 years. He says it needs to be increasing. No matter where we are, our devotion must be maintained, our betrothal love for God, and our increasing in knowledge. And yet, how many Christians today don't know the Word of God? How many churches today in our world are no longer basing all that they do upon knowing the Word of God? There was a time when Christians recognized that we needed to have book, chapter, and verse for all that we do. And in order to have that, we had to know the books, the chapters, and the verses. And we had to be able to present that here is what God has planned for us. But how many discussions have I been in over the Bible and over spiritual issues and over churches and over Christians? And the biggest argument that people have offered is, I just can't believe God would want us to do that. Or I just can't believe God would be against that. It's not book, chapter, and verse. It's not, here's what God has said. It's, well, I just can't imagine that God would say that. Look at all the good we're doing. I just can't believe God would be against this. But there's no biblical knowledge behind that type of statement. We need the book, the chapter, the verse. Or we might find ourselves like David as described in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 13. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 13, the Bible says, as he talked about what happened with Uzzah, you remember the story of Uzzah? They put the ark on this new cart. And they were celebrating it and they were dancing and they were rejoicing and they were doing all kinds of amazing things and it looked good. And I can imagine somebody there saying, well, look at all the good we're doing as we're praising and glorifying God. I just can't believe God would be opposed to this. And then all of a sudden, zap, Uzzah's pride. Why? David said in 1 Chronicles 15, 13, Because you, to the Levites, did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us. But why? For we did not seek Him according to the ordinance. 
We didn't seek Him according to the ordinance. We didn't look at what God's pattern was. And so we didn't know God's will for carrying the ark and therefore God had this outburst against us. How many churches today are involved in that same type of thing? They believe that what they're doing is good. They believe that it's honoring God and yet we're not seeking first His ordinance. There are all kinds of things that our churches are doing. Soup kitchens, orphans' homes, colleges and schools. So many secular and social welfare programs and yet where's the book, chapter and verse for that? Are we seeking first God's ordinances? And brethren, it would be very easy for us to look at all the other churches out there that are doing things that we're not doing, but what about us? Are we taking the time to take a look and make sure that there is book, chapter, and verse for what we're doing? Or are we just happy that we're just not like them? We've got to have that devotion, that love for God that says, get into His book, know His will, don't reject knowledge or we will be rejected as His priests. But Hosea continues on. Because we leave that first love and that devotion and we rejected knowledge, we move on and we no longer call on the Lord. Hosea chapter 7 and verse 7. Hosea chapter 7 and verse 7. As God talked about Israel, said all of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen None of them calls on me. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10 it says, they'll eat but not have enough. They'll play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. We lose our devotion, we reject knowledge, and at some point in there, even though we had been willing to continue on doing all that we had done, because that's the way we had done it, there becomes a point which we're no longer heeding the Lord. No longer calling on Him and finding out what His will is glorifying and honoring Him His way. And we find ourselves as those in Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 3. It says, But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I'll choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. It said that all the religious things that they did, all the things that they did in an attempt to honor and glorify God, God said it's not worth anything. Why? Because they didn't listen to me. I spoke, but they did what they wanted to do anyway. Are we calling on the Lord? Are we giving heed to His voice? Hosea continues. We leave that devotion. We reject knowledge. We quit calling on the Lord and eventually we start consulting something else. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 12, My people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand informs them for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have played the harlot departing from their God. In chapter 5 and verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, 
In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8 and 9, he says, quoting from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Our worship is in vain. If we're following after the commands of men, if we're consulting the wooden idols, if we're consulting anything other than God about how we live as Christians and how churches are to be run, then we're, what we're doing is in vain. How many churches today more closely follow the purpose-driven church than the Bible? How many Christians more closely follow the purpose-driven life than the Bible? Now, are there good things in these books? Absolutely. I've read them. I love them. But are they the Bible? Absolutely not. And we've got to remember that. That when it comes to how we live as Christians, the supreme authority is not what men write today about the Bible, but what God wrote in the Bible. So when we consider how we live in our homes, on the job, in school, where do we turn? When we consider how the church is to be run, what the pattern and plan is for it, where do we turn? Do we turn to God's Word or to societal opinion? Do we turn to the Bible or chicken soup for the soul? Do we turn to the words that were penned by the apostles of Christ as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit? Or do we turn to the educated opinions of erudite professors from our favorite colleges? Where do we go? Whose counsel are we heeding in our lives and in our congregations? Because... If it's not God's counsel, book, chapter, and verse, we're in danger of spiritual harlotry. Now, there's no doubt that every single one of us, every single one of us, have at some time, in a sense, committed this spiritual adultery, turning from God, following our own pattern. When we find ourselves doing that to whatever extent, to a great extent or to a lesser extent, whether it's continued and repetitive or uh, we, we just fell prey to temptation, whatever the case may be, what do we do? How do we deal with that? Hosea chapter 13 and verse 4 provides this. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 4. As God talked to Israel, He said, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except Me, for there is no Savior beside Me. That's where it begins. We've got to realize that God alone is God. I am not God. Society is not God. The church is, excuse me, is not God. Only God is God. He alone is the one that can save us. The brotherhood can't save us. Societal opinion can't save us. Self-help books can't save us. I can't save you. God alone can save us. And we've got to be determined to make Him our God above all others. And then when we look in chapter 14, I believe we see a pattern for how those who have turned from God and followed some other pattern can come back. Let's just read the chapter. It says in Hosea chapter 14, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We'll not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. 
I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they'll blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxurious cypress. For me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. You'll notice there in verse 2, it points out that we need to confess sin and we need to seek mercy. We need to confess our sin. We need to say, this is what we've done, and this is what we've done wrong, and here's what it is. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1 and verse 9. God offers this promise to His children. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. The word translated confess there, homo legeo, means to say the same thing as. When we confess our sins, it's not just saying, I've done something wrong, but it's saying the same thing as God says about our sins. How many were here Wednesday night when we had our prayer service? All right. You know, one of our, one of our prayers, every time we have that, is a prayer of confession. Uh, uh, did anybody hear James's prayer of confession on Wednesday night? As he talked about not evangelizing and all the things that, uh, that, that we, we might, might be doing and the sins. And, and uh, you know, I was just amazed. Did anybody catch the word putridity? That one stood out to me. Have you ever thought about when I sin, I'm putrid? Covered in filth? Dirty? I think one of the reasons we don't have a lot of prayers of confession is because the most we really want to do is confess and say, Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Instead of saying the same thing that God says about our sins. If we said the same thing God says about our sins on a more regular basis, I think we'd probably overcome sin a little more easily. Say the same thing about our sins as God says about them. And seek God's mercy. That's what they did there in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2. They sought God's grace and His mercy saying, Take away our iniquity. Receive us graciously. We need grace. We can't overcome And then repent. There in chapter 14 and verse 3, Israel is supposed to be saying this, that Syria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God to the work of our hands. That's repentance. That's a change of mind that has led to a change of action. That's a recognition that prior to this, when somebody was coming to attack them, they were going to go to another nation and try to get help. But now they're learning, no, we've got to go to God. Prior to this time, they would go to their idols and they would consult their idols and say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're now going to do what you have said. A change of mind that leads to a change of action. And finally there in verse 9, it says that we need to be discerning, that we need to understand, and we need to walk in the ways of the Lord. Confess our sins, seeking mercy, turn from those sins, and walk in the way of the Lord. There's only one way, brethren, we can walk in the way of the Lord, and we have to know the way of the Lord. Getting into His Word, studying it, and conforming our lives to it. And what does God say is going to happen when we're that kind of people? He says, I will heal their apostasy. 
I will love them freely. My anger has turned away from them. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He'll blossom like the lily, and he'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they'll blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. God says, if this is what you'll do, if you'll seek mercy, confessing your sins, repent of them, and walk in my ways, this is what I will be. I will heal. I'll be your God. You'll be a fruitful vine. And that is exactly what we can be today as Christ's bride. The fruitful vine of Christ that is spreading out because we're following in God's ways and doing God's will. Well, remember where we started this last week. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 2. The children of Israel cried out, Oh God, we know you. But in chapter 5 and verse 4, God said, they don't know me. And how easy it is to gradually turn away from the Lord and not ever even realize it. As we offer up our praises and our worship and our work and convinced that we're doing exactly what God wants, and yet God might be along the sidelines saying they don't even know me. I don't want to be that person. And I don't want this congregation to be that church. And I know you don't either. If we're going to overcome that, we've got to always turn to the Lord. Keep our devotion. Keep our knowledge. Maintain it. Increase it. Calling on the Lord. Consulting Him. Seeking the ordinances of His counsel. Otherwise, there might come a day that like the adulterer, we find ourselves in the arms of another lover and wonder how on earth did that happen. But we can't overcome through the grace of the Lord. Turn to Him. Walk in His ways. And that's what we plan to do here. Amen? I hope this lesson benefited you, encouraged you, and edified you to overcome the tempter as we strive to maintain our faithfulness in our marriage to Christ. If you have any questions about Christ's church, about its relationship to Christ, about how we're supposed to obey His Word, or any other topic, please give us a call, 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on CD or on audio tape. If that's the case, may I encourage you to please go to that website I just mentioned, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there, both in outline and audio format, that you're free to use and download in any way that you see fit to glorify and honor God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.